For the last several years, the U.S. Census Bureau has been gearing up for its count of the American population. Researchers have been working out sampling strategies as well as what types of questions Americans will be asked. One of the concerns going into the 2020 census is the possibility of miscounts, which could impact everything from representation in Congress to federal funding for a variety of projects. Assessing the miscount risk is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio is regular panelist John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, Media, Journalism and Films. Richard Campbell is away. Our guest today is Rob Santos. Santos is the vice president and chief methodologist at the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research organization focused on issues of public policy. It recently released a report assessing the possible miscounts in the 2020 census, and Santos is one of the report's authors. Thank you so much for being here today, Rob. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. What do you mean when you say you're assessing the miscounts for a count that hasn't happened yet? Okay. What's meant by a miscount is an inaccuracy. Uh, there is a true count uh, of all people in the U.S. and all people by state and there is what the Census Bureau gathers. There have always been miscounts in the census, and what they strive for is minimizing uh, the, the size of the miscounts. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we believe that uh, based on the 2010 performance and what we expect in 2020 is that there will be a, uh, a noticeable miscount for uh, 2020, which means that the actual number uh, of people re residing in the U.S. will be uh, so different than what actually gets counted that there will be a difference uh, that has implications to why it's important. It's important because uh, congressional House seats get allocated to states based on uh, the decennial census counts. And if there is a miscount, and inaccuracy, then some states will get less than they should, and some states will get more than they should. Mm -hmm. That also extends to uh, federal funding. There are billions of dollars that get allocated, and to the extent that uh, there are inaccuracies, uh, state, some states will get more than they deserve, and some states will get less than they deserve. No, that's that's very helpful. Thank you. And now with miscounts, it's is this is it always an undercount? Uh, no, actually, it isn't. It's uh, there can be overcounts, and in fact, uh, the 2010 census uh, is a great example of overall presumed accuracy or estimated accuracy um, that masked an unfair census. And let me explain how that happens real quickly. In 2010, there was an overcount of uh, individuals who were white, non-Hispanic, and elderly, and there were undercounts of minority populations like Latinos, African Americans. There were also undercounts of children, uh, young children, zero to five years old. And the, the net 
when you put the overcounts and undercounts together, ended up with overall accuracy. Oh. But that had some real implications when it came time for federal funding and other types of things. So you mentioned earlier that to judge the miscounts for the 2020 census, that your group ran some scenarios. Could you talk about what some of those were? Uh, certainly. Uh, we started with uh, what was supposed to be lauded as the most accurate census uh, in uh, of all time, the 2010. Uh, and we took the results of the coverage uh, performance uh, that the Census Bureau did after the immediately after the decennial census and took the res- those results that showed where there were undercounts and overcounts and applied those to the 2020 census, uh, to a 2020 population projection to to, uh, get the uh, results of a a simulated 2020 census. Uh, That was a scenario we called the low risk scenario. Mm -hmm. We also had a medium risk scenario where we took the basic assumptions, operating plan assumptions of the Census Bureau, they projected, oh, we think we'll get so many many forms back, we'll have to go knock on doors and we'll do this and that. And we used that on a projected 2020 population and that was our medium risk scenario. And then we did a high risk scenario where uh, the uh, responses by by households and people were lower than what the Census Bureau projected and we also included uh, the impact of the citizenship question, yeah. regardless of whether it was included. And that was the high risk. So what's what's different about the 2020 census from some of the previous censuses that have been done? Uh, the 2020 uh, census will be a, a bellwether for the future. Uh, it turns out that with even with, if we superimpose the magnificent performance of 2010 uh, decennial census counts onto a projected 2020 population, we would get an undercount of the population. And the reason that that happens is because uh, our uh, wonderful uh, U.S. population is diversifying. Mm -hmm. We are a more diverse nation. We have higher uh, uh, rates of uh, individual of, of mixed races, of uh, Latinos, of uh, African Americans than have ever been in past censuses. And because those also happen to be populations that are harder to count, uh, that ends up uh, triggering uh, the undercount that we expect for 2020. And it gets worse when you start superimposing more realistic assumptions about what could happen. Why are those populations harder to count? Is it an issue of trust with the instrument itself or uh, census workers not being as um, well-versed in those communities? Could you talk a bit about that? Uh, certainly. It's a variety of reasons. Uh, so, for, exen- uh, for instance, uh, African-American and Latinos uh, tend to be more mobile mm. and it's easier uh, to count someone who owns a home and is stable and has a you know a, a track record of where yeah. they've been and where they're going and are more stable uh, than renters. And so renters historically have been harder to count. Mm-hmm. Uh, Latinos are more of an immigrant population. There's higher concentrations of immigrants. And moreover, even in households that have citizens uh, among Latinos, there are also non-citizens in those. Those 
you know, mixed immigration households. Uh, historically, those have been harder harder to uh, to follow as well, or to to get to participate as well. So, how how has the report been received? Uh, there is there's been an enormous amount of media coverage, and we're happy because not because. Uh, we're saying uh, that the sky is falling, but we want to use these different scenarios that all show the same story, the, the same ending, so to speak, which is a miscount. Uh, we wanted to use those to motivate uh, a, a grassroots effort to get out the count. Uh, we believe that uh, simply having, you know, public service announcements and the usual uh, complete count committee activities and having mayors and governors uh, speak out on the importance of these, the census essentially talking down to people uh, in not in necessarily a bad way, but basically having an official talk down yeah. to, uh, to, to individuals is not necessarily the way to break through the historical resistance for the hard to count populations. You really need peer to peer discussions and encouragement. And that's what we think is needed. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Rob Santos, Vice President of the Urban Institute. You mentioned uh, a moment ago, Rob, that there's been media coverage of your report, and I wonder what your thoughts were on how journalists can communicate this issue of miscounting without sort of raising alarm, right? Because the issue with coverage of things like this is always that you suggest to people that um, this is a problematic thing and not trustworthy, and maybe that can then suggest to other people that maybe they shouldn't even participate. So what what advice would you give to journalists who are going to be covering this around how to talk about the possibility of the miscount and maybe how they should think about covering the census more broadly? Uh, certainly. I uh, overemphasize the opportunity loss of not participating. Mm. The message uh, that we communicate is that you, the human being uh, who resides in the US deserve to be counted. And it doesn't matter uh, whether you're uh, white, black, mixed raced, Native American, Asian, uh, what gender, uh, what religion or anything, or immigrant status, you deserve to be counted. And you deserve it because it helps you, it helps your family, it helps your community, it helps your state. And it helps in multiple ways, not only in terms of uh, you know, the, the usual you know, political representation, but it also helps in terms of getting funds, uh, you know, federal funds, state fund allocations are also tied uh, often to uh, decennial census counts. And decisions on where to put infrastructure, fire stations, schools, uh, commercial uh, buildings like Walmarts, grocery stores, those all rely on a, count, a complete count, an accurate count. And that is why uh, that's the message that we put forth. And we use the threat of uh, potential miscounts and undercounts as a way of illustrating why it's so important uh, to uh, to recognize you're uh, the being deserving of being. So even if the best scenario, best case scenario that you describe, the low risk scenario, leads to a, a, a significant miscount, particularly undercount of certain groups, what's the remedy? Uh, the remedy is to do the best that you can. Uh, all censuses, even the lauded 2010 census, have issues. 
Uh, I contend that the 2010 census, while overall it was accurate, was unfair in that it overcounted one group and undercounted another group, and that has real policy implications. Uh, we have to live with that. And so what we're trying to do is to minimize uh, the risks associated with an inaccurate census. And so I say, let's do the best we can to get the most accurate and fair census count. And fair means counting all peoples equally rather than uh, overemphasizing one over the other. So I'd like to just change gears just for a bit for, from the census to the Urban Institute and, and hear a little bit about kind of what are some of the things that, sure. that you study at the Urban Institute that you've been involved with? And, and in particular, are there, are there examples of projects that, you're, that you really would like to describe as kind of in, insightful and impacting policy? Uh, certainly. I, I have been uh, honored to be at the, the Urban Institute for uh, about 16 years and two stints. The most recent is about 13 or 14 years. And uh, in my position as chief methodologist, I get to play in everyone's field. Uh, everyone includes about a dozen different substantive research centers that cover everything from justice policy to uh, families to immigration, uh, health policy, education policy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, because of that, I've uh, been able to be PI on a variety of studies. I just we just talked about the the 2020 census miscount. Uh, there's also been uh, projects that I've uh, worked on that involve uh, justice policy, uh, doing challenging things for the, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, like trying to design uh, samples to estimate uh, pretrial um, uh, releases or not of individuals, uh, looking at case counts. Um, there are projects that have to do with um, the, uh, I've actually done a firefighter safety study I've done transportation research as part of part of uh, this. Uh, I've worked on uh, a number of housing discrimination studies where we take paired testers uh, and we randomly scrape the web for sales and rental um, home uh, home listings, either sales or rental, as I said. And then we send out paired testers, one which is um, uh, a basically white and the other is minority, uh, or one that is single and the other that has a family, or one that doesn't have a housing voucher and one that does, but are otherwise equally financially capable, and then measure uh, discrepancies in how they're treated. So there have been some really important studies that we've done uh, to help uh, look at the policy landscape. I've also been involved in uh, immigration uh, and uh, refugee studies. Uh, I'm on my third annual survey of refugees for health and human services that we're conducting. And 10 years ago, I worked on the impact of the ICE raids uh, on, um, on the communities uh, to show how not only were uh, immigrant communities devastated, but whole towns yeah. uh, uh, almost collapsed as a result of ICE raids on large manufacturing firms. 
How do you do research like that? Because to, re- to, to survey refugees and to work with immigrants, some who I imagine are not in the country legally, how do you connect with populations that may be vulnerable and, again, distrustful of someone coming in to do research, concerned that maybe you're working for ICE or working for the government? How do you sort of navigate that space in order to do research that you hope will, ideally, I'm assuming, help these communities? Yeah, the, the beauty of policy research is that it is a quest for knowledge and uh, and insight on specific policy research issues. And we attack those in different ways depending on the specific research question. There are many uh, and most research questions we have at Urban Institute are ones that we deal with quantitatively and involve statistics and statistical inferences. Others, uh, who uh, questions that are equally important, involve um, uh, issues of exploring why something's happening, what the type of issues are, without necessarily quantifying them in a statistical way. And it's an example where uh, we use qualitative research approach, approaches. So the, ice, the impact of the ice raids on communities was actually a qualitative research yeah. study where we flew out to different sites around the, around the country where ice raids had occurred and talked to families and talked to the employers and talked to the community folks, people who own grocery stores, et cetera. Whereas things like the annual survey of refugees for HHS, we, we uh, get a list of all refugees in uh, that were admitted over the last five years and draw a probability random sample and conduct a survey in over 17 different languages. Wow. Uh, and uh, and we do that, uh, we've done that like three years now. It's uh, incredibly important. It shows uh, how refugees are integrating uh, into uh, U.S. society and are pursuing the American dream. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction between quantitative and qualitative research and study design? I know that's a gigantic question to talk about, but but I th- a lot of people that, that might be listening are, are very familiar with some of the quantitative ideas and analyses, and but, but maybe not so much with the qualitative. So just a, a simple illustration would be very sure. much appreciated. Sure. So, so um, qualitative research really gets to issues of why and how, where uh, quantitative uh, is more of a how much to quantify things. In in terms of the qualitative research, uh, an example would be the uh, ICE raids study, where we uh, wanted to know how uh, the ICE raid was impacting the communities. And so we would go into the community and find individuals in the community who were undocumented, undocumented families, and ask them after the ICE raid, uh, what happened to them? What did they do? And we'd find out things uh, like that they were uh, turned out all the lights in their house for a week and closed all the doors, wouldn't answer the doors, and simply stayed inside because of fear uh, of somebody coming and taking their children. Um, so it, it helps uh, provide some texture, some uh, uh, textualization, so to speak, uh, around the types of things that are happening to people and the types of impacts. So we were able to pull from those types of uh, communications that some people were in such fear that they simply left town with you know, almost all their belongings behind. 
Some people, you know, hid in fields for three days. Some people turned out all the lights and didn't answer the door for a week. Grocery stores uh, basically had to shut down because nobody was going to, to buy groceries in wow. immigrant communities and, and neighborhoods. Those are the types of things that don't necessarily warrant and you don't need a statistical point estimate for. You need to know that it's happening so that then you can uh, essentially put together a conceptual framework of how uh, policy decisions like an ICE raid uh, impacts the different communities and in what ways it impacts. That can then help stage uh, a, a later study that's quantitative that says how much of an impact uh, occurs. And then you can go and randomly sample people, ask them specific questions that were motivated by what you found out in your qualitative study, and then uh, and then uh, put statistical estimates around, like 30% you know, of the people moved out of the city entirely, that type of thing. Oh, that's thank you. Uh, I have a. I liked in your in some of the writings that I read of yours that you talked about actionable insights as being something that was really important for the work that you do and the work the work that you've done. Is there a particular actionable insight that that led to a change that you you really would be excited to talk about? Uh, yes, I um, actually I was um, APOR president and I gave an address. You may want to talk about what APOR is. <laughs> yeah, APOR is the American Association for uh, Public Opinion Research. It's basically the collection of pollsters, survey, academic survey researchers, and government uh, survey researchers, commercial as well, uh, in, in the country. And there's uh, a good uh, international representation as well. And uh, for that, uh, for the president, I was president in 2014, and my address focused on the need for the survey research and polling world to transcend um, the classical survey research and point estimate uh, uh, methodologies and recognize that we need a quest for knowledge and actionable insight. And actionable insight, the, the best example I had uh, was that there was an instance where uh, we found out that there was a in the uh, ice raids uh, qualitative study that there was uh, a, a person, a, a mom who was separated as a matter of policy from her child who was a who was breastfeeding. That went on for three weeks, and it was absolutely uh, horrific for that person and for that family, and uh, the. The fact that it was an N equals one observation and the fact that it was policy was an actionable insight that then led to a policy by saying we will not separate families from their children. Uh, now, it wasn't necessarily just because of our study. Uh, there were other instances being reported in the media by that time, uh, but still that you can have an actionable insight without necessarily it being a statistical insight and vice versa. You can have statistical insights that could never be made uh, with uh, qualitative studies uh, that are really important, like uh, clinical trials, you know, in the pharma world. Well, Rob, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, it was a delight. Thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks, Rob. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcast, or other places you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.